Life Off the Pendulum is the course of study for this fall semester in adult Bible class at Trinity Lutheran Church. In this study, Rev. Dr. Jim Von Bush will expose and explain what life on the pendulum looks like and the many struggles and heartaches we encounter because of it. He will also share what life off the pendulum can be, a life that trusts and rests in the abundant grace of God. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for sunshine, and we thank you so much for your promises that even though sometimes day after day after day seems just like day after day after day, you are present with us, and you are at work in us and among us, and so nothing is meaningless. And we ask, Lord, that you would make this time all that you want it to be for the growth of us in in our relationship with you and in our freedom in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to actually add to or you know, give a little addendum to last week's topic. It was self-love, right? And so I wanted to give just a couple of more thoughts. This email came out just this week. It's written by a pastor at Memorial Lutheran in Houston, Texas. He's also, I believe, one of the vice presidents of Synod. So Reverend Dr. Murray writes this. Being wrapped up in our own feelings breaks the first commandment. When our focus is on ourselves, it cannot be on God. Self self is always the idol closest to hand. So I think that ties in with our discussion of the pendulum of self-love. If we are engaging in loving ourselves, we are, in fact, as he says, engaging in idolatry and breaking the first commandment. He goes on and says, The word of God turns us away from ourselves and toward the God who has defeated all our enemies, especially those within, um, within, in life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a great statement for Reformation Sunday. Right? The word of God turns us away from ourselves and toward the God who has defeated our enemies. The whole picture changes when we give up ourselves in favor of God. There is nothing but defeat within, within ourselves. The old Adam is a continual plague to us, dragging us into the morass of our own sins and weakness. He is a continual witness to our depravity, howling in satanic verses. So again, the devil is always accusing. That's what his name means. He the accuser. And so uh, as Satan, he's always accusing us of our failures. Ironically, sometimes he uses the law, sometimes he doesn't, but he's just there accusing us over and over again, a continual witness of our depravity. The irony is that this internal witness is the truth. The old Adam, Satan, and the world are telling us our own sin and rightly doing so. They just have wrong what our sin means. So it's not hard to point out our sin. We can see our own sins. And Satan can capitalize on our own sins and point those out to us. So again, that's not the wrong part. The part that he goes on and says they have what's wrong is what our sin means. They claim again and again that our sin means our damnation. Sinners we are, damned we are not in Christ. That's the caveat, right? In Christ we are not condemned. We are not damned. Now, modern thought rejects God partly because we cannot get beyond the idolatry that focuses on the self. 
We cannot get past our idolatry that focuses on ourself. There is nothing beyond me, my experiences, my feelings, my satisfaction, or my dissatisfaction. Truth is not part of the equation. Merely how I feel about things is the predominant. Uh, he didn't say this, so he's just saying that what our feelings become predominant. When you make me feel badly, you are offending me. I don't particularly care to ask myself if you are telling me the truth. I'm just indignant. Many in our fallen age have so focused on themselves that they feel alive only when they are experiencing the most intense feelings, whether it be pain or joy, suffering or exhilaration. So here's the picture of the continuum. Doesn't matter which end, as long as I'm experiencing one or the other. May God rescue us from all this self-centered bent, from all of our self-love. For that way lies death and damnation. The only, way to truly, the only way truly to live is to give up focus on self and live in Christ alone through his word. The word of God gives far beyond what is felt. Christ felt the sentence of death within himself, but believed only the promise of God that the Holy One would not see decay. Believing trumps feeling no matter what you feel. And so self-loving behaviors are ever-present. But Christ died on the cross because we have engaged in self-loving behaviors. Not only that, he goes on. Now, I've summarized a little bit of his article, but some of what comes to light then is how one generation raises the next generation to love themselves. And so this was really profound. It came up in our confirmation class last week, junior confirmation. Some of the discussion of how do we pass on faith from one generation to the next generation. And that's what we're called to do. And in fact, God holds generations accountable for not passing on the faith to the next generation. But what we're really good at is passing on self-love to the next generation. And so things to think about. And each generation seems to go to the next level or take it to the next extreme. So if we're considering this from a pendulum perspective, if we're over on one end or the other of self-love and we pass that on to the next generation, to our children, it's only going to swing further each direction. Mm -hmm. I, I often think of this statement that I hear so many people say and believe. I just want to give the kids the things all, I, all the things I couldn't have. It's like, what kind of a goal is that? Yeah. Because the thing that's the most important is already free. Right. It's ours. God's grace, the gift yeah. of love and forgiveness. And it's a, the only thing we can fall back on in the, in the end. Yeah. So, yeah. That's an important point. Because it's just, I think, Anita emphasizes this idea of what do we want to give them, right? When you make that yeah. statement that I didn't have, I want to increase their love of self. Yeah, that's exactly That's what's right. being said. Maybe not intentionally, not maybe you know, cognitively aware of that, but that's what we're saying, is I want to push them further on the pendulum of self-love than where I was. So there are actually some really detrimental, I think we touched on several of them, detrimental outcomes to self-loving behaviors. Interestingly, I think I can summarize them by saying self-loving behaviors always cause harm in the end. Maybe not in the immediate, 
in that moment. But self-loving behaviors cause harm. And actually, here's the thing. They perpetuate guilt and shame. The very thing we're trying to do with self-love is to overcome these feelings of guilt and shame. And yet, the very behaviors we engage in because of self-love produce more guilt, more shame. So what increasing measure, right? We're going to engage in those activities and even more so because now I feel more guilt, so I'm going to love myself more. I feel more shame, so I'm going to love myself more to try and overcome that. And we just increase it. And so that's uh, just some thoughts. Like I said, these, uh, this article, I get this, this email weekly, and it came out the beginning of this past week right after we talked about self-love. So let's talk about life off the pendulum, week eight. And our first fill-in-the-blank is unforgiveness. That's the pendulum we're talking about today. Actually, the pendulum we're going to, the way we're going to be off this pendulum, it's not hard to anticipate, is forgiveness is the, the really the theme of our pendulum speak today. But life on the pendulum, the first one is unforgiveness. So in that context, if we are going to be and practice unforgiveness, because I think what we're talking about here is a character trait, a heart. This is what we're talking about. In all of the pendulums, it's always about the heart. And so if we are going to have a heart attitude that is characterized by being unforgiving and therefore engage in not forgiving, you see, that's, that's an action of choice as well. It's not just that it doesn't happen. It's by choice that we don't do it. It's by choice that we do not forgive. So if we're going to live in that sense, life on the pendulum of unforgiveness, what does everybody want then? If we're holding on to this, if we're not forgiving, if we're holding on to the hurt or the offense, what do we want? What are we after? What's that? Well, yeah, it's when you say, Val, we want forgiveness, I mean, the, the heart that we're talking about here is, why would I not forgive you? Revenge. Revenge. That's Burn. a big one. Yep. So we want vengeance. You know, I had a friend growing up, and this isn't, I mean, you've probably heard the phrase before, but he would say it with frequency. I don't get mad. <coughs> I just get even. Nerd. What's that? Evener. Evener, right? Because now it's back and forth. <laughs> back and forth. It's an escalating thing. Thank you, Randy, for that clarification. So we want to get even. And where does that stop? We want revenge. Anything else? Why would we not forgive somebody? Why would we hold on to that offense? Fear of them hurting us again. Sure. Yeah, I'm, going, I'm opening myself up to being hurt again if I forgive this individual, so I'm going to protect myself, mm-hmm. right? So fear, that's a really important one. Self-love. Well, back to self-love, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm right, no one else is. Exactly. I'm going to love myself by not forgiving you. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's kind of like more eating, eating rat poison thinking you're going to die. Isn't that, you know... So, okay, so we got some fear, we've got revenge, we've got even this idea of protection. Anything else? Why else would we not 
forgive someone. Justification? Yeah. The kind of that idea of, I'm the one who's right, so why would I forgive you? So anything else? Is that where you're going with that, Debbie? Yeah. 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 Or justice. They need to pay for what they did. They, if I forgive them, they get off scot-free. And that wouldn't be fair, and that wouldn't be right. So not going to forgive them. They need to pay for it. There's hurt and anger that mix in there, too. And I think we mentioned hurt, but I always think where there's anger, there's usually pain involved. Mm-hmm. And hanging on to that anger and that pain is a more comfortable place than letting go of it in some cases. Interesting, interesting. So still, life on the pendulum was about comfort. And so it's more comfortable for me to hold on to it. I know that spot. Yes. I'm familiar with that. I know what that feels like to hold on to the offense and the hurt. Mm -hmm. What would it feel like to not hold on to that? That could be uncomfortable. It becomes an idol. How do you mean, Debbie? How does it become an idol? Focus. Yeah, yeah. And so we we actually start to worship the the hurt, the offense. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's powerful thought to hold on to. And it focuses our attention then, right? We give a whole lot of attention to it. Directs how we live. Directs our behaviors, the choices we make, how we even engage in conversations or relationships. So, wow. Powerful things. So those are some things that we want. Powerful reasons for why we would not forgive. Powerful reasons for why we would hold on to offenses and hurts and wrongs and not forgive someone. So how do we get that in this life? I mean, the conclusion I think you've already shared is by holding on to it. Keeping it ever present in our thoughts and and heart and even what we do and how we live. So let's look at our pendulum for a minute. Some of you have already mentioned these ideas, so we're going to just kind of clarify some of them or or emphasize. If we're looking at the left-hand side of the pendulum, we're going to withhold forgiveness. That's how we're going to get what we want. When we want justice, when we want protection, when we want to get even, when we want to love ourselves, all those things that we've already mentioned, right? We're going to do it by withholding forgiveness. The ironic thing is it's the same on both sides of the equation. On the right-hand side of the pendulum, we also are going to withhold forgiveness. The real question is how? That's that's what we're going to be looking at. How do we withhold forgiveness? And maybe a little bit of why. So if we're withholding forgiveness, I'm just going to go down the left-hand side. It works for me. The first one would be actually power. I feel like I'm holding some power if I don't forgive. It gives me some strength if I feel like I'm withholding forgiveness. It's a decision I can make. Maybe I couldn't make a decision about you hurting me, but I can make a decision about not forgiving you. And so I feel like I have some power. The next one would be protection. This was already mentioned. The idea of if I forgive them, they're going to hurt me again. I open myself up to, to more hurt. So now put these two ideas together, power and protection. First of all, it's a mythical idea. 
It's false. It's something we fool ourselves into believing. You have no more power by not forgiving than you did by forgiving. And you really have not, no more opportunity to protect yourself from being hurt either. They can still hurt you again, unless you're going to completely avoid them, but now the relationship maybe is completely gone. So again, this idea of power and protection are false. False. And the, th- the funny thing is, you know, quite often the person that you are holding this offense doesn't even know. Doesn't even know. <laughs> you knew where I was going. <laughs> they didn't even know they had offended you or hurt you, but boy, you're holding on to that. And hurting, just reliving and idolizing that hurt and giving it so much attention and helping it to grow. And they didn't even know. They didn't even know they hurt you. And yet we take it as though it was intentional. And they know that they hurt me. And they're looking for another opportunity to do it again. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. That does happen. But either way, this idea of I'm powerful because I am holding on to... The only power you have is you're continuing to hold on to a hurt. That's as far as... that's as limited as your power is, and it really doesn't protect you. Think about it. If they didn't know they hurt you, they're probably going to do it again. And if they did know they hurt you, well, then there's a whole other story there. But uh, power and protection lead to withholding forgiveness. After that, it turns into bitterness. The scriptures are quite clear We're told not to hold on to these hurts because they will turn into bitterness. Do not let the root of bitter the seed of bitterness take root and grow. So now that turns into this long term anger is what is being described. And yet Paul tells us in Ephesians not to let the sun go down on your anger. And now we're turning it into long term anger by holding on to that offense and being unforgiving. And the last line there would be, because we want to, how can I say this, judge their remorse. I don't think they were really sorry. They have to prove to me that they were really sorry. How are they going to prove to you that they're truly sorry and, and remorseful enough to satisfy your standard of remorse, so then you'll say, okay, I I forgive you now. Haven't we seen that in all of society in the last few years where somebody did something 30 years ago and now they can no longer be an acceptable human being and we can never forgive them? Oh, right, yeah. I mean, we, I mean we've stored it up and now we bring it out when it's useful to us. That's terrible. Yeah, but we I see it all the time in relationships. You know, in my 30-plus years of counseling, We'd get to these points, and somebody would say, I just don't think they're sorry. And, and I don't think they're sorry enough. What does that mean? It goes back to this power protection thing. If I don't think you're sorry enough, I think you might do it again. So you have to prove to me that you're sorry enough before I'll offer any kind of forgiveness. So we withhold it, and we set ourselves up as the judge of somebody else's remorse. How sorry are you? Did you earn God's forgiveness? Did you? Did you show God you were sorry enough? 
to deserve Christ's death on the cross. So, but we like to judge it because it goes back to that idea of withholding forgiveness so that I have power, protection, and can grow my bitterness root. That's all kind of on the left-hand side of that pendulum swing. What about on the right-hand side? If we're going to withhold forgiveness a different way, the first one I would put down here is accommodation. Accommodation. Or, you know, we're just going to put up with. Meaning, it comes out in phrases like this. It's just the way they are. They can treat me and other people like that because that's just who they are. And so what have we done? We've accommodated We've tried to avoid some conflict, and we've said, that's okay. They can go about hurting other people, and we'll just accommodate it. But what we're doing is withholding forgiveness. Therefore, we overlook sin. That would be the next one. Okay, what's the most common answer to this statement? I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm sorry. No problem. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. Right? Those are the most frequently used responses to the phrase, I'm sorry. All we're doing is overlooking sin. All we're saying is what you did is okay. That's what we just said. It's not a problem. And in fact, what we're doing is withholding forgiveness. On this side of the pendulum swing, instead of bitterness, it turns into resentment. Resentment. little different than bitterness. Bitterness is long-term anger. Resentment is long-term hurt. Long-term pain. Bitterness is I hold on to why I'm angry at you. Resentment is I hold on to why you hurt me, how much you hurt me. And what happens when we withhold forgiveness on this side of the pendulum swing? We perpetuate sin. We just keep it going. Because when somebody says, I'm sorry for what I did to you, and we say, that's okay, no problem, don't worry about it, what we're really saying Keep doing it. That's what we're saying. Yes? So you know, a while back you said that people say they're sorry too much. You know, like, like our example is uh, I went to an appointment and the doctor was late and he came in and said, I'm sorry. And I said, I forgive you. And he laughed. Because <laughs> <laughs> that only gives you speaker in that. And um, people will keep you on hold and they'll come back on the line. Sorry for keeping you on hold so long. Oh, it's okay. I forgive you. <laughs> Um, you know, it, do they really need to be sorry for that? I mean... What it's I, turned into, I think, is a... Is it, are they sorry? <laughs> it's a polite courtesy. Right. So I've been thinking about that, and it's like, maybe it would be better to come in and say, thank you for your patience. Absolutely. Patience. That would be more what they were, are really trying to say, but it's become this little catchphrase for us. Yeah. I'm sorry is supposed to make all things that inconvenience you or frustrate you go away. So if I'm late for an appointment, I say, sorry, now you're in a position of, what are you going to do? I'm really upset that you made me wait in the, doc, in the waiting room, right? <laughs> what do you, oh, so out of politeness and courtesy, you say, 
Well, that's okay. I enjoy wasting my time in your lobby. But don't let it happen again. Yeah, don't let it happen again. <laughs> <laughs> like that's going to happen. <laughs> you know, I, we could go on that route for a while. <laughs> I think what you're bringing up for us was a really important distinction, and thank you, Beth, because there's a difference between saying I'm sorry as a polite courtesy and saying please forgive me for doing a wrong. Now, is it a sin issue that the doctor was late or that they had to keep you on hold? No. So, yes, maybe it would be much better to say, thanks for your patience. What I tend to say, and this is just my practice, based on trying to operate within this distinction, if somebody says, sorry for making you wait, I say, I accept your apology. And then we can move on. Um, but I think it's just one of those things that... What's, what? I'm just laughing because the last time that happened to me, it was like a two-hour wait. And I said, I can help you fix this with your schedule. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so offering some assistance. Yeah, there you go. Show you how to fix that. <laughs> and, you know, that might so be appropriate. <laughs> yeah, because everybody else is having to wait that long, too. So, But, again, you bring up a, a thing, and we're going to talk about it more in detail in a minute, is there is a difference between a sin issue yeah. and the inconveniences that happen in our world and a flippant phrase like I'm sorry it's supposed to be like a band-aid make it all better what happens is sometimes we say I'm sorry as flippantly when it was a sin issue and then people are just supposed to accept that too as and that becomes a, I'm probably gonna do it again but you know so here's a tough one and either we've been caught in it or have seen it and know somebody who's been caught up in the cycle of abuse because I'm sorry, that's okay, or don't do it again, I promise I won't, and then that just continues. Mm -hmm. So forgiveness is incredibly hard because one, the, the, the abuser is, wants forgiveness, mm -hmm. he forgives himself because he's been permitted to do it again. And the victim then is, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to say I'm sorry. But now they can't forgive because they, it's going to come again. Mel, you bring up a really important point for us as well. We're talking about forgiveness and unforgiveness at the moment, why people would, would withhold forgiveness. And I think it's true. I mean, everyone in the room is going to at some point know that we have not forgiven someone, that we have held on to hurt and pain and for one reason or another, whether it's for power and protection and we turn it into long-term anger or we overlook sin and say, it's okay, go ahead and keep treating me that way. Either way, right, it's unforgiveness. Forgiveness, you got me jumping ahead now. Forgiveness does not mean trust. I'll forgive you, but I won't forget. You could say it that way. Now, here's the divine answer, right? God says, I choose not to remember your sins anymore. I've removed them as far as the east is from the west. Here is the true statement. If you ask God to forgive you for something that you've already confessed and been forgiven for, he is, and I don't mean for this to sound flippant, but I want to make the point. He says, I don't know what you're talking about, which we'll come back to in a minute. But in our relationships, as you have just brought up, Mel, the whole perpetrator-victim cycle that we see over and over again, forgiving someone does not mean you trust them. 
And that's another issue to be resolved. So we're just talking about forgiveness today. But it's very reasonable to say, I can forgive you, but that doesn't mean I'm going to trust you. That's good. Okay. So, either way you swing on this pendulum of unforgiveness, it results in tremendous daily stress. Unforgiveness results in you experiencing daily stress. The unforgiver. Like I said, the person who hurts you may not even know. They're not living under any stress of that anyway. But for you to not forgive means you are living under great daily stress. Either way, withholding forgiveness will damage relationships. It will destroy them. And what it leads to for the one who is practicing unforgiveness is a hardened heart. How can it not? Whether it's about bitterness or resentment, whether it's about power and protection or accommodating and perpetuating sin, we have to harden our hearts to be able to live on this pendulum. Hardened hearts. So you obviously know life off the pendulum, the life that Christ gives to us in himself is forgiving. Forgiving. It is the trait characteristic of Christ. From the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. And so in Christ, we can live life off the pendulum with that same character quality, character trait of being forgiving and therefore forgiving. So it's a be and do. We can be forgiving and give forgiveness, do forgiving. So the faith response, the first part of it is believe that their sin against you was a sin against God. Let that sink in for a minute. When someone sins against you, they are sinning against God because they have gone against God's will. You don't have to protect yourself. They have sinned against God when they've sinned against you. To live life on the pendulum, set yourself up as God especially if you're going to judge their heart, judge their level of remorse, or judge whether or not their sin even needs forgiveness. Life on the pendulum of unforgiveness says you're God. But a faith response says, I believe that when they sinned against me, they sinned against God, and that is a big deal. That is much bigger than if they had just sinned against you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Reading from Acts chapter 26, this is when Paul is standing before King Agrippa and he's basically giving his testimony to King Agrippa from when he was approached by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And so I'm just going to give you this one section of his defense. In this connection, so he's journeying, he said he's been gathering up all the believers, now he's going on the road. It says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. 
At midday, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says, I am taking it personally when you sin against my people. So the first faith response that as part of forgiving is we recognize that when we sin against others, we are sinning against Christ. And when others sin against us, they are sinning against Christ. Jesus says it to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you? I am the Lord. And as you have been hurting all of my people, you have been doing it to me. Jesus said it in the reverse, right, with the sheep and the goats when he was separating them right and left. And they said, what have we done for you when you brought me water, when you clothed me, when you visited me in prison, you did it for me. Jesus takes it personally. The same thing with sins committed. And then the next one, believe that Christ's death on the cross was satisfaction for both. Christ's death on the cross was satisfaction for their sin against you and their sin against himself. So again, look at that, overlay that back over the pendulum. Withholding forgiveness means that Christ's satisfaction was not enough. So I'm going to withhold forgiveness. Christ's death on the cross was not satisfaction enough, so I'm going to protect myself and hold on to that anger, or I'm going to overlook that sin because Christ's death was not satisfying enough for that one, so I'm just going to say, well, you can keep doing that one. Either way, what we're saying is that Christ's death was not satisfaction enough, but the faith response says it was completely satisfactory for both. I mean, so who makes all this possible, right? In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So who makes forgiveness possible at all? Christ and the shedding of his blood tells us something about how important forgiveness is. Tells us that forgiveness is critical. So how is the faithful application of truth? What does that look like when we hold these things in tension? First, identify and acknowledge their behavior as sin. It takes us back to what Beth brought up for us already. If it wasn't sin, then it doesn't need forgiveness. If it wasn't a sin, it doesn't require Christ's blood. But if it does require Christ's blood, if it was a sin, we need to be able to name it as such. You can't forgive if you haven't said it was a sin. And this gets, I mean, this becomes hard for us. It's funny, isn't it? On the pendulum, we want to judge the remorse of a person's heart. 
But when we get down to the faithful application of it, we don't want to say, that was sin. Boy, that might, that might create conflict if we were to say to somebody, that was sin. Mm-hmm, Val. It just reminds me of what Jesus said on the cross, and I use it a lot, actually. <laughs> Forgive them, Lord, they just don't know what they're doing. And, and so they need to be told. Yeah, exactly. It needs to be pointed out what they were doing. Yeah. So that they can receive forgiveness. If we don't point it out, we are withholding forgiveness. So, believe, identify and acknowledge that their behavior was sin. Call it what it is. Or forgiveness can't be offered. The next part of the faithful application of truth is to agree with Jesus. This is what faith means. We agree with Jesus that they are forgiven. Jesus has forgiven them. And so by faith, we agree with Jesus that they are forgiven. If he has forgiven them, by faith, I will agree with him and say they are forgiven, even before they ask. Even before they ask. As Val just pointed out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They haven't even asked yet. And Jesus has forgiven them. You haven't asked for all your sins to be... I mean, have you named them all? But Jesus has forgiven you for all of them. So the faithful application is to agree with Jesus. They are forgiven. That's a, that should probably be an exclamation point. They are forgiven even before they ask. And then... Ask God to bless them. Honestly, truthfully, want God's grace in their life. If you struggle with point three, go back to point two. Right? If you're struggling to ask God to bless them, go back to agree with Jesus that they are indeed forgiven. And you want God's grace in their life. So when you say, ask God to bless them, yeah. that's kind of a broad statement. Like, bless them with or for what? Like, um, I mean, you just said, forget, bless them with forgiveness, and that's... That would be a huge blessing. That would be it? No, I think it's more than that. I mean, I'm not asking for them to win the lottery. no. But I want God's grace to permeate their life in any way the Holy Spirit wants to. That answer the question? Kind of. I'm think, thinking a little bit about politics right now. Well, I'm <laughs> not. Uh, I mean. When you ask the, to bless the president, you go, that guy? Yeah, you might. I want God's grace yeah. in his life. Desperately. Yes. And however, and so the, I think what you're bringing us to, Mel, and it's a great point, ask God to bless them, thy will be done. I want God's grace in their life according to his will. That, That's better. That's better? <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, Fred. Because of what Christ did, 
all sins are forgiven. But if the sinner doesn't repent, are they forgiven? Okay, let's go to point four. <laughs> Tell them if they seek it. Here's the thing, as Fred, you brought up for us, what if there isn't repentance, right? What if they don't ask? What if they think, I don't need to be forgiven for that? These are all realities. And the same thing is true for human beings with Jesus Christ. I don't need his forgiveness. I don't need a savior. I didn't do anything wrong or not bad enough. Or So it's no different. Yeah. I'm not going to judge their repentance. So here again, how we hold these things in tension. Two things that seem opposite are true at the same time. Christ's death on the cross was for all sins from all people, all places, all time. John tells us that when they confess their sins, when we confess our sins, we experience that forgiveness. The forgiveness is there. We experience it when we confess. So, I have forgiven this person that sinned against me already. I've agreed with Jesus. They are forgiven based on his death on the cross, his shed blood. I, not mine, his shed blood. That's why I'm forgiving them, because Christ has already forgiven them. I'm sinning if I'm, I'm sinning if I withhold. Let's just be clear. They are forgiven before they ask. I'm asking God to bless them. That might even bring them to repentance. Grace given to them might even bring them to repentance. They might ask, you know what? I realize I sinned against you. I hurt you. Would you forgive me? I am ready to say it because I've already forgiven them. They can say it in that moment, and I can say immediately, you're forgiven. If I don't forgive them, then I am claiming deity, telling God what he should do to not forgive them. If I forgive them, it's back recognizing God as the ultimate. Yeah, so not only did I say if we're withholding forgiveness, it's a sin, but if we withhold forgiveness, like you said, Leland, now we're putting ourselves in the position of deity, and we're going to have a little friction with God over that because God's saying, I forgave them. And I'm saying, I disagree with you, God. Don't forgive them. Right? That's kind of what you're saying, isn't it, Leland? So, yeah, that's an important, uh, critically important point. But if I've already forgiven them, ask God to bless them. When they confess, I am joyful and ready to say, yes, you're already forgiven. Any other thoughts on that before we turn the page? Scripture, and maybe it was just to the apostles. I agree fully with everything you say, but the, when he says, I give you authority in what you guys bind on earth, you're mm-hmm. bound in heaven, what you unbind on earth. Is. The power of the keys to unlock forgiveness. Yeah, he says that to the, his apostles right there in that moment, disciples, um, as he was teaching them along the way. Uh, our Lutheran confession uh, believes that what Peter says when we're the royal priesthood, all believers, royal priesthood, is those keys are ours as well. So yes, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, Arvid, those keys have been passed on. But to, doesn't it say what you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven, what you don't forgive on earth? 
Yeah, so when Jesus says that, he is saying that um, that idea of unlocking and locking, right? And so what are we going to unlock and what are we going to lock up? And the keys that Jesus is giving are the keys to the kingdom is this idea of we're going to unlock forgiveness and lock up sin. And that's how we do that. We lock up sin by unlocking forgiveness. Does that? Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Harvard. Great, great point. Anything else? The Lord's Prayer. Right? <laughs> thanks, Fred. The obvious. You know, forgive me as I forgive those who trespass against me. Yeah. Right? We're in agreement with Jesus. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about the next one then. Life on the pendulum, the topic is still forgiveness, but now it's self-forgiveness. Now, some of the things we've already talked about will transfer right into this one, even as Leland brought up for us this idea of acting like a deity, acting like a god, claiming some kind of divinity when we hold on to forgiveness when God has already forgiven that person. Self-forgiveness is just taking it to the next level, and it's a natural step to say, I will also practice divinity in my own life. I will be my own God and forgive myself. What did the Pharisees say to Jesus when he forgave the man who was lowered through the roof? Right? So the friends have dug the hole, lowered him down because he's paralyzed, and they want God, you know, Jesus to heal him. And Jesus says, I forgive you. And everybody else is like, I thought he was going to heal him. And the Pharisees are saying, if he's not God, he can't say that. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Because again, every sin is committed against God. He's the one who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross, shed his blood for the payment of sin. God is the one who has the authority, and as Arvid brought up for us, he then shares that with us. He shares that ability to forgive others, not ourselves. What does everyone want with self-forgiveness? I think it's this. I'm just going to summarize it this way. We want to feel better without humility. We want to feel better without actually having to confess that we were wrong. And then where does that lead us? I think uh, several people have already brought it up in the current context of our culture is we just approve of everything. We say everything's okay. Nothing's a sin. So we want to feel better without humility. How do we go about that? Let's talk about the pendulum. On the left-hand side, I think it's about engaging in idolatry. We love self-serve ice cream. We love self-serve at the gas pump. We love self-serve. Why? Because we can do it better. And I don't have to wait as long. And I just, you know, self-serve checkout lines. We like self-serve. And we like it with forgiveness as well. So we engage in idolatry through self-service. As we've already said, we do God's actions. 
These are all on the left-hand side. I'm just kind of going through. If we engage in idolatry, it's through self-service, especially in the context of forgiveness. We do God's actions or God's work. And I think what we're actually saying is that God's work was incomplete. He didn't finish the job, so we'll finish it for him. I think that's all on the left-hand side under idolatry. On the right-hand side of the pendulum, we can swing all the way over to self-pity. So on the one hand, you know, on the one end of the pendulum, it's idolatry, ego, I can do this for myself. I don't need anyone else, let alone God, to do this for me. On the other end of the pendulum, it would be self-pity. I can't be forgiven. I fear punishment. I just want people to feel sorry for me. I don't want real forgiveness. I just want people to feel sorry for me. On that end of the pendulum swing, we're saying that God's work is incapable, unable to provide the forgiveness we need. According to our graphic, the left-hand side of the pendulum is God's work is incomplete. On the other end of the pendulum swing, it's God's work is incapable. Either way, we're left with emptiness, a void that we cannot fill, guilt that we cannot erase, and it's continual. It's just continual. Life off the pendulum of self. And I don't know, I'm not spending a lot of time going into all the details of self-forgiveness. I think they're pretty obvious, unless you want me to, to mention anything more. I mean, it's just so prevalent. It is so prevalent. And what's, what's devastating is that self-forgiveness has crept its way into the church, which has crippled the pro- proclamation of the gospel. You don't need the gospel if you can forgive yourself. Yet we're told all the time to forgive yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely, Mel. And like I said, I mean, it is so prevalent, not in just our culture around us. It's been in our culture for decades, but it has made its way into the church. And it's taught as kind of a, well, yes, God's forgiven you, but if you still feel bad, forgive yourself. That's kind of the, the nutshell of it. Life off the pendulum is simply this. Receive forgiveness. It's almost too simple, right? There's got to be more steps, more works to be done. Something else I have to do to contribute to this because God's grace isn't enough. But it's simple. Receive forgiveness. What is the faith response? Acknowledge your behavior as sin. It's hard to receive forgiveness if we are unwilling to be vulnerable, unwilling to humble ourselves, unwilling to acknowledge that our behavior is sinful. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. 
David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Acknowledging that I sinned. David says, I know what my transgressions are. My sin is before me. But I also know that your love is steadfast. You are abundant in mercy and you will wipe out my transgressions and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So the second point is we agree with Jesus. You are forgiven. Or you could reword that. I am forgiven. It's true. It's true. You are forgiven. It's not based on emotions. I mean, it quite often can include emotions. I mean, even as David writes this, I think there's some emotions in that. But he's not basing anything on the emotions. And what happens is we don't feel like we're forgiven. So either I ask God again and again and again... Or we believe this idea that, well, I must have to forgive myself somehow because I don't feel forgiven. We're really going to trust our feelings over God's truth. Faith response is knowing, agreeing with Jesus that you are forgiven. The next one, believe that Christ's death on the cross was full satisfaction for you. You see how similar this is to the first side? You see, on the first side, we withhold forgiveness from others. On this side, we reject the forgiveness that God is granting. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 27. Speaking about Jesus, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifice for himself, he never sinned. First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus offered himself as the one-time sacrifice for all. But even the high priests couldn't forgive themselves. The priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could offer sacrifices for others. You'd think if somebody could self-forgive, it would have been a priest, right? But they couldn't. They had to offer the blood sacrifices before they could offer sacrifices for the people. So, believe that Christ's death on the cross was full satisfaction for you. And that it's not something we do for ourselves. And then last, confess that forgiveness is grace. Confess that it's grace. Forgiveness is unmerited favor, an undeserved gift. Now you see how you receive it by faith and also how if somebody else is going to receive your forgiveness, it's also by believing. It actually opens up for the proclamation of the gospel rather than preventing it. Because all forgiveness is grace. Nobody deserves to be forgiven. Free for us. Christ paid dearly for it. 
There you go. Faithful application of truth. And what are the things we hold in tension? Live as forgiven. Live that way. Live as forgiven. If the faith response is that you agree with Jesus, that you are forgiven, then that translates into living as forgiven. Yes, we are both sinner and saint at the same time. We still sin, but there is no condemnation for those who are on Christ Jesus. I'm going to encourage you, I don't have time right now, but Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about I know I'm still dealing with my brokenness. I sin all the time. I miss the mark in so many ways. I do the things I know I'm not supposed to do. I don't do the things I know I'm supposed to do. I'm still a wretched person, a wretched sinner. And yet, in chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, sinner and saint at the same time. Therefore, we can also live boldly for the gospel. What is the gospel? One word. Forgiveness. The gospel is forgiveness. The law points out our sin. God's grace tells us of our Savior. Forgiveness. That's the gospel. If we're withholding forgiveness, it's going to be really hard to share the gospel. If we are convinced we have to forgive ourselves that Christ's death was not satisfactory, it's going to be really hard to share the gospel. But when we live as forgiven and we forgive others, we proclaim the gospel. Only by receiving forgiveness can we truthfully proclaim forgiveness. Almighty God, thank you so very much for the word of truth. We ask that your Holy Spirit would help it to to penetrate our hearts and that we might be able to say, I do believe that Christ's death on the cross and his shed blood satisfied your demands and that I have been made righteous in Christ and that we want others to experience that same freedom. And so we proclaim your gospel of forgiveness. We ask for your grace to be evident in the lives of others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.